Conversations with Daniel Noor, tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, Every week, I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic, trying to get straight answers on the moral, political, and social issues of the day. I invite you to join me and to have your questions about today's tough topics answered as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. This podcast concentrates on a recent attack, and more importantly, the plight of a community of Egyptian Christians. Following the bombing of St. Peter's Church, beside St. Mark's Cathedral in Cairo, which is the seat of Egypt's Orthodox Christian Church and home to the office of its spiritual leader, Pope Tuadros II, we're talking with Samuel Tadros about the plight of Egypt's Christians. Samuel is a research fellow at the Hudson Institute Centre for Religious Freedom. He's a contributor to the Hoover Institution's Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on Islamism, and before joining Hudson in 2011, was a senior partner at the Egyptian Union of Liberal Youth, an organisation that aims to spread the ideas of classical liberalism in Egypt. Born and raised in Egypt, he received an MA in Democracy and Governance from Georgetown and a BA in Political Science from the American University in Cairo. He's even studied at the Coptic Theological Seminary in Cairo. His work has been published in a number of places, including the Wall Street Journal, the National Review, Current Trends, World Affairs, the Weekly Standard, and he's also appeared on TV channels like Fox News, CNN, Sky News, the list goes on. Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, I'm very excited actually uh, about our chat because being an Egyptian Christian myself and also, I don't know, recognizing perhaps the place of Egypt in the Middle East and and what it represents, I'd like to know just what you think about the significance of the church and the significance of its challenges. So could you tell me a little bit, first of all, just what is the Coptic Orthodox Church? Well, the the fact that the question is being asked tells us about how much memory we've forgotten about um, the deep history and rich contribution that the Church of Alexandria, as it was known in, during the period of late antiquity, played into the history of world Christianity. Um, Christianity, of course, came to Egypt at the hands of St. Mark, uh, the evangelist, but the connection of the land to the, the biblical narrative is, of course, much older, whether it's um, Abraham, Jacob, um, uh, Isaac coming to Egypt, Moses leading his people out, and the Lord himself, of course, escaping to the country. But Egypt's role in Christianity, in those early centuries of Christianity, the Church of Alexandria became one of the main pillars of the world of Christianity. It, um, it gave Christianity monasticism, which began in the lands, in the deserts of Egypt, one might say, uh, at the hands of St. Anthony the Great, an Egyptian, a Copt. Mm. Um, the, it gave the Christianity its key theological heroes who defended the, the Christian faith both against pagan ideologies and, and philosophies, uh, names like Saint or, or Oregon, 
um, um, and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gave it also its heroes against all the heresies that emerged over time. People like Saint Athanasius the Great and Saint Cyril uh, are considered um, saints, not just in the Coptic Church, but in the whole church around the world, the Catholic Church recognizes both as doctors of the faith, mm. as, as pillars of what Christian beliefs are. And of course, St. Augustine was an African, is uh, that right? Uh, no, St. Augustine lived in uh, what is today Tunisia, of course. Um, mm. So he, the, he lived in, uh, close enough, but not exactly in Egypt. He was a new neighbor. He was a good friend. But just speaking yeah. in terms of, of the, the region's kind of representative value. It's I'm, a church that was there from the, the beginning, part of um, the, the whole history of Christianity. Yes. It breaks from the universal church in 451 um, uh, in the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, together with a number of other churches, the Ethiopian, the Syrian, the Armenian. And today they form what is known as the uh, Oriental Orthodox family of churches. So they're different, a bit different from the Eastern Orthodox, the Constantinople, Greece, Russia, Romania, these countries. And uh, But they're, they're called the Oriental Orthodox family. What were you saying were its neighbor or, you know, sister churches in the Oriental community? Um, the Syriac, the the Church of Syria, yes, the Ethiopian, um, and the Armenian, yes, yes. So, and also the um, maybe the Eritrean, isn't that right? Oh, yeah, the, Sudanese. the Eritrean recently gained its um, independence, of course, from the Ethiopian, um, and and became part of of uh, the also continues to be part of the Oriental Orthodox, as well as a small community. Uh, called the Malkar um, uh, Saint oh, Thomas, yes, yes, yes. that that has had also a rich history there in the subcontinent. Yes, uh, it's a huge uh, spread, really, and a very kind of proud-sounding lineage, if you like. So, with that said, you've said that they've given us monasticism. That the you know the Sea of Alexandria is is one of the five ancient seas, I believe. You yeah. know. Uh, along with Antioch and Rome and the others. So are its challenges in any way representative of the state of Christianity in the Middle East more broadly? Can you fairly say if things are going well in Egypt, things are going well across the region, if things are going badly in Egypt, that's also true? Is that fair? Um, I mean, it's it's in one sense representative, but also the region is now a deeply divided place where each country is following its own um, route. There was a period in history, uh, in modernity, when when modernization efforts began in the region, where Cairo led, where the music of Cairo was played in radios across the region, the movies of Egypt became the ones watched uh, across the region, and the political ideas of men like Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt became the leading ideologies of the region. This is no longer the case. Um, the region has changed dramatically. Each country is absorbed into its own uh, problems and has its own internal disasters. But the Coptic Church does represent an important aspect as well here in the sense of we have here about um, over half of the Christian population of the Middle East living in Egypt. So yes. when we talk about Middle East Christianity, more than 50% uh, 
are the Copts of Egypt. What befalls them is representative in the sense of the broader trend of Middle East Christianity. I've heard a statistic that something like one in three Arabs is an Egyptian. Is, have you heard that? Um, one in four. There are 320 uh, million um, Arabs in the Arabic-speaking world, and and they are they are um, uh, 90 million reside in Egypt. So so yes, over a third of them live. Yes, and over a fourth of them. And, and we could hear Samuel. I think that. Um, Maybe there's a little person over there on on your side of of the world who needs your help. I I'm sorry, my you know, political is... political scientist by day, working <laughs> father by night. No, you do what you need to do. We'll just be here. Daniel, sorry, one second. No problem. I think there are obviously common themes that run across the problems faced uh, by Middle East Christians um, um, in the different countries. Each country has its unique circumstances. Um, in Iraq, the Christians are caught in part of the uh, Sunni-Shia conflict around them. Obviously, this uh, doesn't play in Egypt where you don't have a Shia population, for example. Um, but there are common themes there in terms of the, the restrictions and, and discrimination by official governments, by, by I mean, official circles, the yes. governments, regimes, um, whether it's the threat that they face from um, the organized Islamist groups, attacks uh, like the one that we started our conversation with, the St. Peter's bombing in Egypt, and the societal discrimination that they suffer from. These three aspects uh, are present in all of these countries in the region. Yes, that yes, and also I appreciate, and I don't want to be naive, that every region, I mean every country rather, has a very particular set of circumstances. Like for example, Lebanon is very different to Egypt. It's the Definitely. status of its Christians is it was more ingrained in the in the politics and the superstructure of power of the country. But, but that said, we don't need to skirt around the issue and pretend as though the Christians of the Middle East are the safest and, and most prosperous and happiest in, in the world. I, I think that would also be, be wishful thinking. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely. I mean, um, in general, not just in the Middle East, we have a tendency not to view Christians, and I say we, meaning the West in general, um, as persecuted people. Uh, Christianity has been the dominant religion of the West, and there were, um, uh, there's a history there of Christians persecuting others, whether within the faith, um, who develop different ideas, or different um, religions and sects completely. Because of that mindset, it's very hard for people in the West to look at Christianity as the underdog, as the persecuted religion, yes. as the one suffering. But there's no doubt, looking at numbers, that Christians are the most persecuted religious community in the world today. Mm, this is not just in the Middle East. Yeah, it's it's there as a as a French philosopher has said it, the the when he talked about Middle East Christians in particular, that they are too Christians uh, for the left to be interested in their plight, and they're too foreign for the right to be interested in their plight. Mm, mm, yes, well, they kind of get they get screwed both ways. So they they fall into a blind spot. Yes, 
So Samuel, we said that this is not just as simple as saying, oh, there are, there's a group of people in every country of the region, especially in Egypt, that are hated, that are maligned. We have to understand why and how that's the case. What is the Muslim Brotherhood and how is it connected to the recent bombing? And maybe once we've done that, tell me a little bit more about the history of that organization in, you know, in, in, the, in the Egyptian history more broadly. Well, we can spend hours on that, but uh, to sum up, uh, Muslim Brotherhood is established in 1928 at the hands of Hassan al-Banna, a school teacher. Um, there are several reasons uh, for its establishment. You had the end of the caliphate, the one political system, um, the basis of the political order that the Muslim world had lived under for 12, 1300 years, suddenly disappeared when Kemal Ataturk, uh, the president of Turkey abolished the caliphate. In, and as a result, in Turkey, you mean? A, they disappeared yes, Turkey, from Turkey. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. And and as a result, there was suddenly a, a, a need of what happened. How can we organize? How can we restore political order and, and meaning in life? So that was a reason. Yes. There was a westernization going on in Egypt at the time. And many people in traditional society were unhappy with that. They resented calls for uh, women's empowerment and emancipation. They rejected the idea of citizenship, of equality for all Egyptians, regardless of religion, uh, meaning both Copts and Muslims. Yes. Um, so there was this rejection of westernization. And both these, the 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 fear of being turned into part of the West and the, the realization or the need for the caliphate formed the thinking of Hassan al-Banna as he uh, establishes his organization. What's unique about the Muslim Brotherhood, and of course there are various Islamist groups from uh, non-organized Salafis uh, to the jihadi groups that we have around the world to the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, but what's unique about the Muslim Brotherhood is it develops this methodology of how to establish the common dream that all these Islamists share of basically establishing an Islamic state. And it argues that this needs to be not through um, necessarily the, the jihadi route, although it does endorse jihad in certain uh, conditions and has done so in the past and in the present, uh, but through basically a bringing of a new generation, they work on recruitment of people from a young age. Um, it's a process of eight years to become a full member of the Muslim Brotherhood, and then through winning elections, and they want to use that to transform society. Mm. It's an ominous idea, isn't it, to have a worldwide caliphate? Again, it's the one political system Islam has known. Um, the even when there were um, countries ruled by different dynasties that in all aspects were the ones really in control, they still paid homage to the idea and to the presence of a caliph in Baghdad mm -hmm. who had absolutely no power. I mean, it tells you something that after the Mongol invasions and the destruction of the caliphate in Baghdad, the Mamluk rulers of Egypt felt the need to import a grandson from Iraq, from the Abbasid Caliph, and establish this puppet caliphate in Egypt 
just so this is the established order, because that's what people are used to and expect the world to be ordered accordingly. Mm, it's an old, it's an old tradition. Definitely. So, how have I, I was going to talk to you about the, the relationship of the Coptic Church with this organization, and I do want to do that. But if I if I could just get more of a scope about the relationship with this organization, the Muslim Brotherhood, and the various administrations of modern Egyptian history. How have they fared? Have they been heavily persecuted, for example, under Nasser and Sadat? It's been a um, complex relationship. Uh, they emerged under the king. They were useful for um, King Farouk in fighting the main popular party at the time, the Waft Party. So they were, in a sense, part of the royal coalition to defeat the Waft. Um, they, the relation with the king, in, in a sense, worsens by the last years of his rule. They are key supporters of the 52 revolution. Nasser had been, um, it's always a contentious historical issue, was he a formal, former, formal member of the Brotherhood or not? But he definitely knew them. They had a working relationship. They prospered for two years after Nasser's revolution. And then he clashed with them and they were completely crushed by him, mm. jailed, uh, tortured, and all of that. Sadat um, allows them out of prison. Um, they find an already existing Islamic revival built on it. Sadat thinks that he can use a more conservative uh, political attitude to fight his competitors on the left and in the supporters of Nasser, his predecessor. But um, but then he clashes with them and jails them by the end of his rule. Mubarak has a, a mixed relationship with them. He never completely crushes them the way Nasser did, and he never completely opens for them the opportunities the way Sadat did in his uh, initial years. Um, so there, they were allowed to exist, but they yes. couldn't establish an official party. It was always a complex back and forth. Yes, and so... This this back and forth, this continuum of repression and then resurgence, has it resulted in the violent wave that we've seen recently? Is it fair to say that the Muslim Brotherhood is violent? Um, I think there's. Uh, it's very fair to say that the Muslim Brotherhood today in Egypt has... Um, created groups that have adopted violence. It's a, it's a fascinating story. When Morsi is removed from power and the Brotherhood started demonstration waves in Egypt, um, they obviously get cracked down on and, and the, the demonstrators begin to get attacked. And they create these units, they call them the technical units, to protect their marches, basically. Yes. So these are the front guys who will clash with the police. Um, slowly, the, the idea becomes, okay, if we're going to beat these guys in, in, in street fights, why can't we throw Molotov cocktails on police cars? I mean, yes. it's easier to accept burning a car than fighting an actual human being. Yes. Slowly, the... I, we, I, say, I, it like, I say it like I know, but anyway, <laughs> continue. 
But it's it's really we've witnessed three waves of violence since Morsi's removal. The first was much more um, spontaneous, was much more disorganized. Um, they throw Molotov cocktails. They they um, um, burn um, electricity towers or or attempt to bring them down to impact the electricity uh, grid in the country. They did these um, violent non-lethal, uh, in this sense, yes. attacks. The second wave comes maybe a year and a half later, and it becomes a wave of much more clear violence, of targeting um, a police officer that you know has participated in a, a dispersal of one of the Brotherhood's protests, for example. So it's much more uh, targeted, much more organized. You see the names emerging of things like the popular resistance, the um, these groups that are uh, the revolutionary punishment, yes. uh, groups that come from the Muslim Brotherhood. Now we're witnessing the third wave with groups like Hasm and Lua'a Saura, which basically conduct high-level assassinations. Um, they endorse the killing of any police officer, um, regardless of his role, just by virtue of serving in the police or yes. the army, you're a, you're a legitimate target. So definitely these groups are very clearly violent. And they have also been the victims of violence. What about uh, Rabah um, massacre? Oh, which, definitely. Uh, the, the removal of Morsi, the, when the Muslim Brotherhood protests gather in Rabah Square, uh, the regime's decision to remove them, the, the, there's no doubt that Rabah was one of the worst, if not the worst, massacre in modern Egyptian history, where around, we, we don't have exact figures, but roughly speaking, about 1,000 um, uh, Muslim Brotherhood supporters lost their life. Enormous. Mm, in one go. Yeah. So they have had a very difficult relationship with the Egyptian government, and yet, uh, astoundingly, perhaps for that government, perhaps for the, if you like, the uh, traditional stewards of power, they came to government and, and Morsi was elected in a popular election. Just as an aside, before we get into the, the, the state of the, of the Coptic clergy today, you know, its views and its political alignment, a lot of people say that the, the overthrow of Morsi was a great blow to Egyptian democracy. What do you think about that? Uh, I don't think Egyptian democracy existed mm. for it to receive a blow. Um, I've at no point uh, since the revolution that brought down Mubarak was Egypt turning into a democracy, if we mean by the word democracy, something beyond a ballot box. Um, Egypt held numerous ballot box competitions, but this is not what we mean by a democracy in the West. In the West, we uh, perhaps a better word to use is liberal democracy, where the rights of minorities are protected, where winning a majority of seats does not allow you to transform the shape of the country, change its identity, persecute the ones who didn't vote for you, where the, the liberties and freedoms of all are protected uh, under the law. None of these have existed. Yes. So, so it's very hard to say that a blow um, uh, was... Uh, um, was exacted. That, that democracy received the blow because where was that democracy? Yes. Okay, Samuel, so let's talk about the church today. So especially, where is it going? Where is it heading? 
What about its relations now with the Sisi administration? I read just a moment ago on Christianity Today that President Sisi, as he's sometimes wont to do, to make promises and declarations of his support for the community. He said, we will build the largest Coptic church that has ever been built in Egypt, that kind of a thing. He rebuilt the, the St. Peter's Church in a matter of days after the bombing, in record time, you know. He, he visited uh, the, the papal cathedral, I think, uh, in the, the first year that Pope Tuadros celebrated Mass, which was kind of unheard of, really. A long time coming, I think. So what are its, you know, for an Egyptian president to, to visit the, the Coptic yeah. Church, what's the relationship like at the moment between Pope Tuadros and President Sisi? Uh, from the church side, yes. the church and the community welcomed uh, the removal of the Muslim Brotherhood and Sisi's emergence with deep enthusiasm. Um, they feared for the, the very existence of the Coptic Church in Egypt uh, and its future under the Muslim Brotherhood. The signs were clear of where the conditions were heading. The Coptic Church was attacked. Uh, by a mob of violence with the police participating and supporting them for the first time in Egyptian history uh, under President Morsi in April of 2013. So they, for them, Sisi is um, their savior from, from what they've been living under. Now, of course, many in the community have began slowly to change this view because of the failure of the regime to do anything to actually protect them. Yes. Now, from the regime side, uh, there's no doubt that President Sisi is um, or appears to be someone who's tolerant, uh, who does not have any hatred towards the Christians in his mind or heart. He uh, really appreciates and has developed a good working relationship with the Coptic Pope. Just as an aside, Samuel, you say that not because you're a psychologist, but because you are bearing witness to a comparison. For example, Sadat, it might be fair to say, did not like the, the, yes, the, the Coptic yes, Church. Yes, very clear. And yes. actually imprisoned its Pope. Is that right? Yes, very clearly. Yes. Um, Nasser didn't care less and, and never understood the Copts of was the role and never cared. Sadat was much more hostile. Mubarak was for a long time hostile, mm. um, changed in his last maybe decade in power. But, um, but Sisi appears to be someone who genuinely um, looks at these cops as, yeah, they, they, they're not bad people. He doesn't have any antagonism towards them. Yes, yes. And he particularly likes the Pope because he really appreciates the fact that the Copts did not complain to the West, in a sense, as he would have expected them, after the dramatic destruction of Coptic churches following the Rabah massacre, when mm. Muslim Brotherhood supporters destroyed more than 100 Coptic churches and buildings across the country, which is the largest wave of violence against um, destruction of churches since the 14th century. And they Amazingly. don't complain. So mm. he's, he's, he likes Christians, or he doesn't hate them, but he's done absolutely nothing to protect them. Um, he neither has the, the, there's no pressure on him to do anything, nor is there any, um, uh, in a sense, uh, willingness for him to put pressure on the local authorities that are actually the guys that uh, handle things on a daily basis. So under Sisi, there has been no change in the conditions of cops. Mm. He might talk the talk, 
he visits the cathedral, he announces this big thing, uh, I'll build a new, uh, the biggest uh, church in Egypt, or we'll restore St. Peter's, which is, well, they didn't exactly restore it. I mean, they restored the chairs, yes, but you, yes. they, they don't have the technical abilities. These will take months, if not years, to restore. So what they did is they replaced the the the, the chairs and couch. I mean the things people sit in, yeah. and they cleaned the place. That's the restoration that the army's engineering corps did, which is great. But thankfully, um, they they didn't mm -hmm. think that they can restore the paintings and mm. this in a couple of days because this is one of the most beautiful churches in Egypt. Artists have been brought from Italy, spent five years doing the paintings and the mosaics of that church. Yes, it's an extraordinary so it's a, church. It's a real cultural loss out of everything else. But going back to this, the Copts are still suffering. They are still legally discriminated against in the country. They still suffer from discrimination in government appointments. There isn't a single Christian governor, dean of a university or school in, in Egypt, president of a university. There's not a single cop allowed in the intelligence service or security services. 1% cap in the military and, and police force. 2% cap in the judiciary and the mm. uh, foreign service. They are discriminated, and worse of all, they suffer from attacks, not just the big bombings by the organized jihadi groups, but more, um, um, in a sense, um, fearful for, I mean, the um, holding more threat to the future of the, the community is the attacks they suffer from from their very neighbors, where uh, their very neighbors, the guys they go to school with or they, they go to work with, attack their churches, burn their houses, with the police failing to do anything to protect them and forcing them into reconciliation sessions where no one is punished for these attacks and where the, the attackers' demands are often met. Fascinating. What that's and this is a new phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, have we seen, for example, in Upper Egypt, where you often read terrible stories about a woman who was kidnapped, a church that was burnt, a group of villagers who stole their neighbors' things, or worse yet, you know, hurt violence? Is that new? New. Mm. It's becoming much more common, but it's not something entirely new. I mean. Uh, these attacks take place in three conditions. Um, it's a rumor. Mm. Either a rumor that uh, Christians are building a church, and for the majority living with them in the same village, that's an affront. That's an insult to mm. Islam, mm. that the church is being built in their village. Or, number two, that uh, a rumor spreads that a Christian has somehow insulted Islam, uh, it might be a Facebook uh, post. It might be just liking a post on Facebook. There's a guy who received three years in jail for a blasphemy charge of insulting Islam because he was actually tagged in a picture on Facebook that was deemed insultive to Islam. So he actually didn't post anything. He was just tagged on it on Facebook. And the third um, rumor or the third condition is a rumor of a sexual relationship yes. between a Christian man and a Muslim woman, which is forbidden Islam. So I, I just want to try and give some impression of the scope. It's an enormous and deep history of Christianity in this country, very ancient. 
one of the first, in fact, I think the first uh, diaspora community of Christians outside of Jerusalem. Isn't that right? But in any case, very old, uh, very important. So Egypt, too, has been a country that has been subject to many different governments and, 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 and many different administrations. I'm just trying to, to show the great, the, the multiplicity of cultures that I, th I think it's fair to say have coexisted in Egyptian history. You walk through Cairo, the suburb of Shobra, you see the very beautiful Roman Catholic Cathedral of St. Therese with its gorgeous mosaic works that's been intact for, for, for a number of years where you see the petitions of the prayers of the faithful from places as far-flung as France, as the USA, as Italy. They leave their inscriptions in the church thanking St. Therese for her intercessions. And, and, you, see, and, you, and you see it in, in Port Said, in Alexandria, the confluence of cultures that have existed in Egyptian history, Greeks and Italians, and the list goes on. So when you say it's an insult to Islam, is this a new kind of take, or perhaps sporadically it comes up in Egyptian history in moments and then goes away and then comes back? This kind of, I don't know what it is, this closed-mindedness, this fear, this recalitrance, is that, is that something that's, that's happening now? I mean, it's, it's, it's both. I mean, the answer is yes and no. The, yeah. the, there, there are, I mean, history was not always just a continued non-stop wave of persecution. Christianity would have been eradicated if that was the case. Yes. Um, periods of persecution were followed by periods of coexistence and quiet. So, so the history has been a complex story. Um, so in this sense, what's happening today is not new. It's, a, it's part of, of a historical pattern of persecution. But it's also something very, um, the size of what's happening is becoming a huge issue. I mean, you've had over, um, I would say, it's, it's pretty much every week you have a low-level violent incident against cops in Egypt. Mm. And I'm not talking even here about um, individual kidnappings, which might be going on daily or, or things like this. I'm talking about a mob gathering in a village and burning three, four houses. Mm. That's something that's really becoming a weekly phenomenon mm. in the southern villages. And it's really driven by this... Um, by this hatred towards the Christians, it's not the kind of hatred of the Islamic State that wants to eradicate them. Um, Muslims in Egypt do not necessarily want to kill their Christian neighbors, no. But And they also don't mind, in a sense, them praying if they want. But it has to be in secret. It's often the demand of these mobs that they don't want a church building. Yes, it insults their pride that there is a physical presence of Christianity in their midst. Yes, if Christians want to mm. pray, they can gather in a house um, quietly and do whatever they do with these things. Yes. But outside, of, it can be a. They often demand that the building wouldn't have a bell. It wouldn't have a tower. It wouldn't have a cross on top. I mean, it wouldn't have any physical appearance. It wouldn't have a dome. It will really have anything that makes it look like a church. Yes, yes, that's it's it's a very um, disturbing trend, I have to say, a kind of insult to one's honor. But anyway, now let's wrapping it up now, Samuel, and looking towards our conclusions here. Uh, a new thing that has just happened is the uh, election of uh, the incumbent president, 
in America, I mean Donald Trump. And I'm wondering, yeah. will the relationship of, well, and and the plight, if you like, of of the uh, of the Christian churches of Egypt change now under under a slightly different foreign policy, and perhaps also with the help of the diaspora community. But anyway, I'll just leave that in your hands, Samuel, as we draw to a close now. Um, um, I don't think much is going to change. Uh, Donald Trump views Sisi very positively. He views him as a partner against Islamic extremism. And as a result, I think he'll be reluctant to put any pressure on Sisi to address um, uh, persecution and discrimination against cops inside Egypt. Um, many cops have high hopes on Trump. Um, they, I mean, Middle East minorities in general voted overwhelmingly for Trump in U.S. elections. Mm. Ones living in the in the United States, and they, I think, they will be disappointed by the fact that it's not a top priority. The administration has adopted a very uh, isolationist, what they call America First uh, foreign policy attitude. They have shown no interest in, or the president-elect has shown no interest in questions of human rights, uh, and religious freedom is part of that uh, component or that issue yes. in any place around the world. Um, so I don't think he's going to do anything for the cops of Egypt. Mm. It's, it's often the case that there's a conflation of President Obama's policies with the nascent Islamism that we see in many countries of the Middle East, a kind of, you know, live and let live mentality that doesn't see that hard-handed interventionist policy. And and anyway, on the Washington Post website, I recently read an article that you actually shared across your Twitter, Samuel, where you said this kind of soft talk about the Muslim Brotherhood and the reluctance of the journalist to recognize the Trump administration's desire to kind of categorize it as a terrorist organization, you found to be a very impotent, an impotent one. Definitely. And, yes. there's, there's, there's an understandable, um, I mean, explainable position on the left that uh, is reluctant uh, because of fears of anti-Muslim bigotry to criticize any element of the organizations that carry the banner of Islam and claim to be its representative. Yes. Uh, so groups like the Muslim Brotherhood are given a free pass. Um, we definitely need to have a serious conversation about um, this group in the United States, what it represents, whether it is a possible threat to the U.S. or not, uh, without extremism, without painting it as the devil incarnate, but discussing the actual level of violence that they have been engaging in in Egypt um, for the past three years and whether that justifies a designation of a terrorist organization. Mm. Um, now, of course, the bill being presented has its own weaknesses. It paints the whole Muslim Brotherhood in this sense, which would complicate um, the United States government's relationship with Tunisia, where um, the, a group that originated from the Muslim Brotherhood, Nahda, is the second largest political party and part of the ruling coalition. In a place like Morocco, where the government, the prime minister himself, comes from a group that emerges, is the Moroccan version of the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. so, so the bill needs to be... Um, its language needs to be changed to address a condition in Egypt that might 
deserve the designation, but also acknowledges that the conditions in Tunisia and Morocco, for example, are very different from that. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, and and we did we we did touch on that the differences. Um, Samuel, this has been such an informative chat for me, and I so appreciate it. I feel like we could talk forever. Well, it's been a great pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me. And I will also say to our listeners that, you know, we really appreciate you listening to Conversations with Daniel Noor. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to Conversations by searching iTunes for Cradio, that's Catholic Radio, C-R-A-D-I-O, or Conversations with Daniel Noor. And why not share this podcast with a friend who might be interested in the plight of Egypt's Christians and the complicated and an impressive history of, of this long of this long and ancient country. Also, do us a favor, and could you give us a five-star rating on iTunes? The way the algorithm works is that any episodes you rate highly are more likely to be seen, which helps us to get the good work out there. Finally, subscribe to the Cradio newsletter by clicking subscribe on cradio.org.au. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Samuel. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations, and for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.